0: The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org.
1: Father, we are grateful for the chance to come into your presence and to sing and to pray and now to hear your word. It is worship from us to you and it is blessing and gift from you to us. Thank you for creating this moment in every week where we gather before you with each other. You're good and kind to do that and I pray now that you would attend to your word here and that you would make clear what's here. you Would help us to understand it, to understand it in its context? You would bless us with the truth here and you would grow us up as your people. You would mature us and that you would make us increasingly useful for your purposes. Worshippers of you and blessings to others. So help us this morning, Lord. Make your truth clear. Build your church and honor your name. Thank you. Amen. For all people, this world is a place plagued with affliction and hardship. That's true across the board. And for the Christian, there is a particular sharp edge to that troubling reality. The Apostle Peter has been reminding us of that as we've often seen working through this book of 1 Peter. As a Christian, we are in the world, as Christians, we are in the world like exiles, he says, sojourners. We're not at home here and we're often not received or welcomed or fully embraced and even then at times we're actually opposed, strongly disagreed with, perhaps even harmed. That's because we are the people of God, the people of the one true God whom the world rejects and like Jesus said, they reject me, they will reject you too. We find that sometimes, and because of that, life here is doubly hard for us. And three weeks ago, the last time we were in this book of First Peter, we saw Peter's instruction to us about how to proceed then, when and if that kind of opposition may happen. The basic troubles come upon us, and when more comes upon us, even because we are Christians, how do we proceed when when we are looking at, at the world and we are doing good to it and we are, we are loving people and we are representing God here well and people still try to harm us anyway, what do we do then? And Peter's answer was, continue to love others. Keep on living out good behavior in Christ. And, and to do that, you're going to have to deal with fear. You mentioned that also in the previous paragraph. Don't fear other people, but instead fear. replace the fear of people with the fear of the Lord. Reverence God. Have, have him first place in your heart and mind. Don't fear them, but fear the Lord instead. Reverence him and be ready then to speak because people are going to notice that and they're going to say, how, how do you live like that? That's what we saw three weeks ago. And in some ways, that was a summary of, of a lot of different things we've seen several different times in this book of First Peter. He's already taught us to do good and to love and be ready and willing to endure suffering and give an answer that others might be saved. That's the point. Bread and butter evangelism, we've kind of called it. And that's what actually brings us to our passage today at the, the end of First Peter chapter 3, verse 18 and following. Peter then moves from telling us how we are to be to to Christ, and he's going to talk about Jesus here, and he's going to show Jesus, kind of lift up Jesus, as as modeling for us and walking for us the same path. And the section here, probably some of us have read ahead and noticed, there's a lot of interesting things in this section, this long paragraph here. We're going to take it in in a course of a little bit of time here. Only one verse is going to be our focus today. I'm going to read the whole paragraph to get the context but I'm only going to deal with verse 18. But there's, there's an idea here about Jesus being our model and not just model, but the, the one who enables us to walk out this complicated path. It stretches through this paragraph and on even into chapter four. So we're going to start some things this morning and talk about one verse in particular, but it's going to have kind of threads that reach into the next several weeks. So if I don't answer all the questions this morning, maybe I'll come to them later. Verse 18 is the focus. Let me read the whole paragraph and we'll see how it lifts up for us. Christ, who he is, what he's done, model for us and a sweet substitute savior. So let me read beginning verse 18 down through verse 22. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. as not a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. The whole paragraph, we're going to focus on verse 18 and draw out two observations. Here's the first. Christ is our substitute sacrifice that atones for our sin. Christ is our substitute sacrifice that atones for our sin. To atone is to offer some sort of a payment or a restitution, something that makes up for something that was wrong or that was an offense. It, it satisfies the anger or satisfies the angst of an offended one. It makes it right so as we're going to look at this verse, what we're going to see here is that it, it tells us that Christ offered the restitution that fixes the problem of sin that we have, that, that satisfies God's anger against our sin. That's what we're going to see here. We often just say all of that, though, in kind of shorthand, he paid for sin. So I might use that language this morning too, but I won't always use all the full complicated language, but what we're talking about is Christ payment for sin. And from this, we get some very technical points drawn out. And I recognize that perhaps even as I stated the first observation, a lot of us said like kind of, yeah, I already know that. I know, but it's good to see where it is. So part of the systematic theology class this morning and uh, Nate's teaching that and and he said, this is one of the guards against heresy is to look at systematic theology. We're not actually doing systematic theology here. We're more looking at a verse. But this is a guard against error. To understand the truth and where it comes from and to be able to see it in some places, in in a verse in particular, and then be able to explain it to yourself yourself maybe to friends or parents or kids or neighbors. This is critical. It's at the core of the true saving work of God. That Christ is our substitute sacrifice that atones for sins. So we're going to walk through this here. For Christ also suffered once, it says. In a sense, really, his whole life was suffering. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, despised and rejected, misunderstood and maligned. The Bible says all of that. And if you can just imagine for a second, to be God and to live here as man would be a life of one long sigh at best. Looking around at the wreck. But this sentence is actually about his Death. Mentioned explicitly later in the verse, he was put to death in the flesh. He suffered, that is, he died once. Once for sins. Not over and over and over again. Like so many bulls and goats and lambs and doves of the Old Testament and its sacrificial system. Those repeated sacrifices that were themselves, if you understand how the law worked in the Old Testament, all these sacrifices were offered up, put to death, for sin, to atone for sin, to make things right, but the very repetitiveness repetitiveness of that, the fact that it happened over and over and over and over again, that itself proved that it never actually dealt with the issue it was designed to deal with. It it put it off, kind of like a gigantic interest-only mortgage. The the perpetual payment puts off the, the... the coming date when you got to pay the principal, but it doesn't actually touch the principal. It just postpones the reckoning. Well, All of that in the Old Testament was just postponing the reckoning. There was still a demanded full payment. That never actually happened. And then Christ died once for sins. Just once, and that did it. Which is why, in every Protestant church, the cross does not have Jesus hanging on it. Because he died once, and that's over. Only once, never again, not perpetually, not constantly. And when we celebrate communion every week, every month for us, some, some Protestants do it every week, Whenever we do it, all we are doing is we are remembering, not re-crucifying. Different Protestants understand different things as they celebrate communion, but all Protestants agree we are not re-crucifying him. That's over. He died once. And it's finished. He suffered... For sins, then. Not for a demonstration of God's love. Not for a demonstration of God's justice or to show how very much God hates sin and evil. From time to time throughout history, different people have offered up different understandings or different ideas or theories about why it is that Jesus died. What's he doing there? Some people have said some of those things. He's dying there to show his love. The cross is about showing God's hatred of sin. And invariably, all of those alternatives make a gigantic mistake when they make a small thing the main thing. The small things are often true. Does the cross for sure does. But does the cross show the love of God? Yeah, for sure it does. Does the cross show the justice of God? Yeah, for sure it does. Does the cross show how much God hates sin and evil? Absolutely. But none of those are the main point. The atonement, what's happening in Jesus' death, is not a display of the love of God or the justice of God. It says right here what it's for. It is for sins. To pay for sins. He died. Why? For sins. Because that's what God knew God required. A single sufficient payment for sins. One death that would satisfy the account. One death that would satisfy God's anger and make it okay. Would pay for sins. The judgment of God once and for all satisfied God, if you will, as a prosecutor would say, I see that, and I rest. I'm good. Over. Done. He died once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, which in the original language is actually even a little more informative than it appears in English because the righteous is singular, and the unrighteous, can you guess, it's plural. The unrighteous one for unrighteous ones. It's telling us exactly what happened. It's not just a principle. It's the unrighteous one dying for unrighteous ones. For, that is, in our place. This is the language of substitution. Replacement. Not with us. Not alongside of us. For us in our place. This language of substitution, of replacement, flat out rejects any idea that in any way whatsoever we help him deal with our sin. There are some religious people and some religious teachings that suggest in some way or another God graciously helps us get rid of our sin problem after we have done all the things that we can first do to deal with our sin problem. The the idea that God gives us grace after we have done all we can do. That cannot be. Christ does not die once for the sins of unrighteous people after the unrighteous people have partially died or have died as much as they possibly can for their own sins there is no there is no team here there is no sharing of death because the Bible says that what is due to unrighteous people for their sin is the judgment and condemnation and death of God and they can't be partially condemned half dying 85% dying 95% dying one or the other one or the other is condemned. One or the other dies. One or the other faces God's destroying curse. There's no combo deal here, no teamwork. He suffered once, died for sins instead of us, for us in our place. He stood in our place He hung on the cross in our place. As chapter 2, verse 24, in this very letter, puts it, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. That's the cross. I didn't bear my sins, or some of them, not a one of them. He bore my sins in his body on the tree. Him for, him replacing him. Him as a substitute. Christ alone, in his suffering and in his dying, is responsible for dealing with our sins. This is what God has done, what God has provided, because that's what God knew needed to be done. Our sins need to be dealt with, and graciously he offered Christ as a substitute sacrifice. What we see here, you could add in chapter 2, verse 24, other verses in the Bible. What we see here in this verse is this important, all-critical doctrine of substitutionary atonement. It's the correct doctrine that stands at the heart of the correct gospel, the good news. Without it, there is no good news from God. Without it, we unrighteous people would be left to deal with our own sin, and we cannot. That's why God provided Christ. God says you cannot. This is the heart of the gospel, the core of it, substitutionary atonement. It's how God makes us righteous, how God forgives us. It's clearly here, so we have to be clear about it. And it's good then to, to find some verse with some words that we can anchor, some of this theology that we all kind of know we can anchor it in and can point out to teach it. So we talk about it and make, make it clear and understand it. However, so understanding that, take a step back and say, however, it is good to note that this verse is not right here in First Peter exactly, because Peter. Suddenly, thought that his readers needed a real quick explanation of substitutionary atonement. He's not walking through if you, if you just glance back and remember where we've come from I kind of already summarized it but, but the idea that begins in chapter 2 verse 12 about keeping our conduct good among the Gentiles honorable so that they may speak against us they may see the good deeds and glorify God. He begins there and moves on about us living before those who don't believe in a way that is winsome and perhaps evangelistic. By the way, let me tell you a little bit about substitutionary atonement. That's not what's going on. It's here, as we talk about it, but there's another reason that he goes into this. The verse begins with a four, because indicating there's some argument going on here we should recognize what's what's the argument well right before verse 18 is verse 17 where he said for it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be god's will than for doing evil it's better to suffer for doing good we talked about this 3 weeks ago why would it be better to suffer for doing good well We talked about there the thing that's in this larger context here is because that's the way that there would be a witnessing opportunity created when you suffer for good and keep on doing good anyway and then are able to explain how it is that you are like that. That wouldn't work if you were suffering for doing evil. You deserve that. So it's better to suffer for doing good. It creates a witnessing opportunity for why would you want to do that? Because verse 18 now, that's also just like Christ did. Christ also suffered, though righteous, for redemptive purpose. That's what the verse is getting at here. Here's this, this teaching here that's kind of showing us Christ as a model to remind us of his heart. The heart of God for us, the love of God for us that led him to behave in a certain way, to give himself up to face suffering and to give himself up to the people who are making him suffer like we're supposed to. We who now are in Christ righteous can be ones who suffer ourselves for the unrighteous. That there may be some evangelistic purpose. Not in the same way. We're we're never going to atone for the other people. We're humans. We can't atone for other people. But a similar principle here. We give up ourselves and we give up our own rights and we, and we willingly embrace suffering that there may be gospel opportunity, that, that others may be saved as they see. This is exactly what Christ was like and so he's modeling something for us here. And if we were to walk in those steps, and how can you walk in those steps? Well, you can remember that Christ has suffered for you, that Christ made himself Sin for you, Christ actually is the one who lives in you now. And if we were to walk in those steps, it would stand out and be very prominent in our world. If we were to walk like Christ. So it's worth asking, as you read verse 18, not only do I properly understand the doctrine of substitutionary atonement, but am I living out one of the implications Of the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. That I would be a Christ like sufferer for the unrighteous that they might be saved. Or to put that in simpler terminology, are you, like Jesus, willingly embracing suffering for the sake of others? Or to make that even more simple, Do you endure nuisance that other people may see that your hope is somewhere else? Do you endure pain in the butt, inconvenience, and morons in the world that other people would see your hope is in something else? Do you willingly take something that's wrong, that shouldn't be, an injustice, that other people would see that you don't live for justice in this world, but in another one. That's like Christ. That's what Christ saved you to, to be like him, willingly embracing suffering, the righteous for the unrighteous, that they might perhaps see something, wonder about it, and be saved. So, yes, understand the doctrine, but see here there's a model for us too. A model that we need to walk out. That's the first reason that this verse is actually right here. But the second is a little bit more difficult to grasp because I've only focused on one verse, and this has tentacles that reach into the following paragraph and even into chapter 4. This begins something. to maybe kind of help you see what it begins, think as if the verse reads like this. Christ suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, being put to death in the flesh, period. Pretend it reads that way for just a second. And the reason I want us to pretend it reads that way for just a second is that That's often how we think it reads. And so what you just heard me say is a tall order. Embrace suffering for the people. Embrace hardship and pain in the butt, nuisance. Embrace it, kind of suck it up, press through it. That's like Jesus did, that other people might be saved, period. And so it sounds like this is going to be terrible. But it's like Jesus... So okay, can't say no to that. Okay, like Jesus, I will suffer and die for your sake. The end. That's how we think this reads. As if it says, being put to death in the flesh, period. There's the command. There's the call on us. But that's not what it says. Put to death, comma, it continues on into the rest of this paragraph into the next chapter. If you see it just as if it's a period and and I'm not saying you do, I'm saying we do. I do too. I kind of view it as just as it's going to be terrible and hard if there's a period there but there's only a comma and to see it as if there's a period views this suffering thing all wrong. It continues, died in the flesh, that is with regard to all these worldly things, his body died and everything else died, comma, but made alive in the spirit, in the spiritual realm. He came back to life, right? And that picks up at the end of verse 21, when it mentions the resurrection of Jesus. Yes, Christ suffered and died. But he didn't stay dead, and he isn't suffering any longer. He went into the grave, and you with him, and he came up out of the grave alive again, and you with him, to walk in newness of life, to live alive in the spiritual realm, and you with him, with the spirit indwelling you. He was restored then to the glory that he had in eternity past. He is ascended into heaven where he sits at the right hand. This is the end of the passage, end of the paragraph. Reigning over everything, all spiritual powers, all people, all things, everything. That's where the period goes. So yes, he suffered and he died. that other people might be saved and we identify with him in that, that's a model. Comma, and also, just alluded to here, talked about more later, he is exalted and in glory and in charge, and that's us too, and that's him with us. So the call is a a tall order, but the resources for the call are massive. And the end of the call is glorious. Don't put the period in the wrong spot. This verse is here to show us the beginning part and it kind of leads us into the end part also. And if we only talk about only the suffering ones for sin, the atonement, the death, we make it accidentally as if suffering and being persecuted here is the last word. And it is not. Or another way of getting at this would be to move towards the second point and mention the part I skipped over, that he might bring us to God. Here's the second observation. In Christ our substitute, we have been and will be brought to God. In Christ, our substitute, we have been and will be brought to God. The purpose of Christ suffering once for sins, the righteous or the unrighteous, is stated right here in the middle of the verse. There, there are a lot of things that accomplished, but here's the, here's the point, that he might bring us to God, which of course means we didn't start with God. We begin in life separated from God, far off. The Bible uses words like alienation, pointing out that it's a distance that's a distance of enemies. It's a distance created by animosity. Because of the animosity between us and God, he has left us by ourselves alone, which... Sometimes a person can hear, maybe a person a little more oriented like me, I'm, I'm fine being alone. That sounds great. No. Not in this case. God has left you alone in the middle of the ocean on an inflatable rubber wrap, rubber wrap that leaks. Alone. You think things are fine for the moment, but if you think for a second moment, you realize, I'm in trouble. I don't have any food and water, and the only thing that's holding me up is not going to hold me up very much longer. And there's no shore in sight. I'm alone. He's talking about a spiritual relational distance. We are away from God spiritually. His spiritual life is not a part of us, it is not shared with us. We are bankrupt, empty, spiritually dead. We do not, cannot commune with Him. We do not, and cannot find spiritual vitality in our souls. We were made for that, we were made for Him. But that light has gone out. We are far off from God and have no relationship with Him. You kind of sometimes got to say to yourself and other people, do you sense that at all? It's, we, we live in a world that has a seemingly endless variety and, and abundance of offerings trying to drown out that message. You can keep finding stimulating videos on whatever kind of feed it is that you use. There's no end to it. And you can pass away time with, with quick delight, quick delight, quick delight, or you can set down the device and you can go out into the world. We live in the United States and you can find or buy just about any kind of diversion. And anywhere you go, you can turn on some music or some talk radio to drown out the quiet noise that's inside of you. So you sometimes have to ask yourself, do, do you... Yourself, do you friend? Do you know what this is talking about to be alone, away from God? This is the greatest tragedy of life. It's the reality of being one of the unrighteous ones. The breaking of God's law in our thoughts, in our words, in our deeds has separated us from the Holy One. He has said, I cannot dwell with sin, so go away, and good luck with that. And we turn on the radio or go to the internet and we try. Good luck with that. Do you know what it's like to scroll, to scroll, to scroll and to be empty at the end of the three hours? I do. I can sense a little bit of that, even as a Christian. But that would be all that you could sense if you weren't one. If you aren't one. Now, in all of the world, there are all kinds of ways that people try to deal with this, this separation and the sin that causes it, the distractions, the pleasures. And then sometimes people do hear the noise and they wonder, what can I do about that? And this is, I think, for me at least, even a bit more sad. Have you known, do you know someone who, who since yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about, and I've been trying. I've been, I've been trying. You're right. You're totally right. At the end of the three hours, I'm empty, so I don't try that anymore. I'm trying something else. I'm, I'm trying. Maybe it's I'm trying positive thinking. I'm trying to like, tell myself that things are okay. I'm looking for God in all the religions of the world and all the behaviors, the prayers that I offer up, the, the books that I read, the services that I do, the money that I give. I'm trying. I'm pursuing God, I think. Where is he? That, I think, is even a little more sad because there's the person who knows they're hungry and they can't, who knows they're thirsty and they're drinking salt water. Sometimes people realize this and they want to deal with it in some way to make it right and the guilt and the shame presses in, not just the the sense of I'm alone and I'm empty, but I'm guilty and I'm ashamed of what I've done and who I am. And you pursue something or another that will make you clean, that will get rid of it, that will that'll, that'll get rid of the, the ugliness and will restore you to something that's beautiful and right and the God you know you're made for. The world scrambles. And God says, nope, not a chance. Go away. That does not work. Because it doesn't work. And sometimes that's all people know. Sometimes people think that's all we are saying. The world is wrong. That's not the message. comma, the world is wrong, comma, but God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son in the words of this passage that we might be brought to God. That's the good news. You cannot come into his presence and his presence is what you need You cannot come into his presence. You cannot know him. We are far off from him except for the fact that God in grace acted and sent his son, a substitute sacrifice that we might be brought to God. Think about that and let that sink in. He is not just the substitute sacrifice for sins that sins may be dealt with. As if that's the end, but that sins may be dealt with, that we may be brought to God. That's the end. To commune with God, the one for whom we were made. We sometimes think of or sometimes tell the story, and and I've done this plenty myself, but we probably all have done this. We we tell the story of, of this redemptive message as if it's about only guilt and forgiveness, penalty and payment, such that at the end, the guilt's removed, the penalty is paid. And then what? Well, I don't know. I guess you're not guilt anymore. No. And then what? What? And then you were brought back into the presence of the one who made you. Christ substitutes his death in our place to bring us to God, to restore the nearness, to repair the relational break. So that when we trust him, yes, the payment of sin's penalty is is taken off of us, it is applied to him, and it is removed and then united to Christ. Remember, we travel with Christ, kind of like being inside of a balloon. We travel with Christ into the very presence of God and are with him forever. That has happened for you now, already, Christian. Now, one day it's going to be even better. Because one day you're going to actually be physically brought into the physical presence of God and you'll be able to touch the body of God the Son. You'll be able to see him with your eyes. You can't see him right now. You can't touch him right now. You, we've been brought to God spiritually in the spiritual realm right now, but we will be brought to, the, to God in the spiritual and the physical when heaven and earth are joined together, when Christ returns. That day is coming. It's not here yet. So you've got even more of the brought to God to experience. But you have so much of it right now. He is near you. He is in you. He is with you. It means that you have someone to lean on and to relate to and to talk with and depend upon in the moments of this life right now. Not just a model to follow and to walk after, but a friend to walk with in the model friend who is God Almighty. We have to take hold of this in our thoughts and apply it to our thoughts and to our feelings and to our fears and remind ourselves of this. You, you face, um, you know, the, the, the week that's coming is some sort of a week or another for you. Maybe you know what it is. None of us know what it fully is. But this week's coming up, and stuff's going to happen. Some of it you may be kind of dreading, and some of it you may dread when it comes. But whatever it is, school or work, you face important deadlines. You've got a tryout. You've got an interview. You've got a meeting. You've got questions that are going to come at you, people who are going to attack you, etc. You face all that, and what's going to rise up is Anxiety and fear and frustration, stress, a call to work. What do you do with that? I actually find it helpful to face those things. When I do this, I I always kind of find myself saying like, oh yeah, I need to do this again more often. But when I do this, it's so helpful. I like to think about the worst possible outcome. That's not just because I'm a glass half empty person, though I am, but I like to think about the worst possible outcome. What's gonna happen from that meeting on Thursday is that person's gonna which is gonna mean and I'm gonna lose my job, and then what are we gonna do? And then, and think about the worst possible outcome and not, and not just that next you say, that's pretty unlikely to happen. The worst possible outcome. No, think about it as if it is likely to happen. And then, think about the worst possible outcome <clears throat> with God in prayer. Two things here. Talk to him about the worst possible outcome And then think about, what would he say to me when the worst possible outcome happens? Where am I? Well, this is going to happen, and that's going to happen, and I'm going to lose my job, and where am I going to be? His chosen possession, royal priesthood, one of his objects of mercy whom he deeply loves, is right beside, completely aware of, holds held in his hand I'm good I'm clueless as to what I'm going to do to eat that week after I lose my job but I am good because God is with You. What can man do to you? All kinds of stuff. No, 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 no. What can man effectively do to you? What can man, woman, people really do to you if God is with you? And he is. Because Christ was put to death bodily and rose spiritually. And you with him. And he brought you to God. And God stands by your side. You're still his treasured possession, his people, his friends. Right now, visibly, physically, right in front of you, you see all kinds of opposition. You see last paragraph, maybe. Or last chapter, maybe. You see all that. But here's the key to not fearing that which is fearful, but hoping in God, you realize that the God who is almighty, the God who intentionally pursued to save me, who substituted in his own son for my sin so as to get me to himself, that God got me to himself. He did that. He did it well. He, he got it. And he got me to himself, and he's never going to leave me nor forsake me. I'm with him, and he's with me. We're right in the middle of the mess here. I'm good. You're good you got to tell yourself that though because raging around is an ocean. But Christian, you're good and you don't have to do anything else at all to make that happen. It is not. You're good as long as you come to church every week or at least three times a month. He's with you and you're good as long as you pray every day and be sure to get your Bible reading in, Old Testament and New Testament, then, no, no, this is the glory of the freedom of the gospel. You're good. Now, that means, I mean, the glory of the freedom of the gospel means that he's grabbed us to himself, he's brought us in. We have been raised to walk in newness of life. That's gonna come up. That's what the following paragraph in the next chapter leads us into. We're different, but you're free. And different. You have been brought to God. And you're in the middle of the ocean on a battleship, in the middle of a fleet that is omnipotent and is sailing towards a shore that you can see. You're not there yet, but you can see it. And you're safe and secure, united with him. There is a lot of wonder here in this doctrine. The doctrine of substitutionary atonement and its purpose. To deal with sin, to bring us to God. And that has happened for you, Christian. All by grace, not a bit by your works. None of us can boast, but all of us can glory in that. Let me pray. Father, help us to see and to glory in that and to rest and to be mighty because you are with us. Cement your word in our hearts and build us up. Thank you, Lord. Amen.